If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Popular understanding of the Holocaust, in all its horror and complexity, is often incomplete or fractured. That's the view of historian Dan Stone, whose new book, The Holocaust, An Unfinished History, sets out to deepen our view of the Holocaust's true nature, from the scope of international collaboration to the fallacy of industrial murder. He spoke to Matt Elton. Dan, I wanted to start talking about your new book about the Holocaust, um, and say that to me, one of the things that stood out about it was, and I hope I'm using the right sort of language here, that it sort of engages with some of the messiness of the topic, the ways in which the topic kind of spills over the boundaries of how we often understand it. Is 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 that a fair assessment, do you think? Yes. Thank you, actually. I think that's an interesting observation because it runs counter, I think, to what historians are trained to do on the whole, which is to try and bring some order to the events of the past, which are often uh, appear... Well, real life is messy, right? So uh, doing historical research often reflects that messiness, and historians tend to impose order on the things that they study and turn them into a a narrative or an analysis which makes sense of a particular set of sources and, and problems and research questions. But when you come to deal with an event like the Holocaust, which is not just brutal and violent and traumatic, but continent-wide, transcontinental in its implications, a major part of modern world history. The the mess and the chaos are very difficult to tame. And I think historians have the feeling that trying to tame them is in some ways inappropriate as well, not just because of the scale of the event, but also because irrespective of how large the scholarship has become, the, there's always a sense, uh, I think, that historians are grappling with that something exceeds our ability to understand uh, in, in this instance. There's always something that, as you say, kind of spills over uh, and that, that doesn't really make sense to us, no matter what uh, frameworks we try to use to, to make sense of the past. So, yeah, I think that's a really good observation. And um, you identify, I think, four sort of threads that run their way through the book, and we'll probably touch on some of them as we go. I wanted to start, though, by getting your take, um, going back to the origins of the story, I suppose, on what you think the key factors were in the emergence of Nazism, and whether you think it's important to see them in terms of a wider picture than just being based in Germany. I certainly think that, the latter, that looking to Germany alone is not sufficient. What what I think Nazism represents, on the whole, is an extreme manifestation 
of phenomena that are fairly common across Europe and beyond in the interwar period. So one of the things that I wanted to stress in the book is that Nazism doesn't come from nowhere. And I think this is a problem in the way that uh, Nazism and the Holocaust are taught at schools and to some extent at universities, that they're Students are confronted with what appears to be a kind of alien life form that's suddenly dumped on on this planet, and all these strange people with their with their strange beliefs living in Germany in in the interwar years, and then uh, who then come to power in in 1933. Now, actually, when you look at the the rise of Nazism, it, it is more extreme. But it, it, first of all, it is a variety of fascism, in my opinion. Hitler is very much influenced by Italian fascism. It, uh, Mussolini, un- until the Third Reich becomes more more significant and more powerful, Mussolini is a kind of older brother to Hitler and to someone that he looks up to. The importance of the First World War in the rise of fascism obviously can't be overstated. The Bolshevik Revolution, the rise of communism across Europe, the uh, chaos of the interwar years after World War One, the continued fighting, the various civil wars, population exchanges, the rise of the notion of statelessness, the rise of concentration camps, refugee camps, all of these are phenomena that uh, f- fuel the rise of Nazism. And, and most important of all is, is the Great Depression, because there, up until that point, Nazism remains more or less a fringe movement in Germany. And so uh, it's the Great Depression that gives the Nazis the push that brings them into power. And that, of course, is a worldwide phenomenon. The response in Germany is different, but only, again, in quantity, not in uh, not in quality, I think, from what's happening elsewhere. But it's, it's certainly part of a much broader uh, European and, and worldwide phenomenon. And so what happens in Germany is a reaction to, is, is a specific reaction, but a reaction nonetheless to a whole set of wider international factors. Is that fair to say? I, th- I think it is. That's. It still leaves the problem, however. I mean, it begs the question, in a sense, for why why does Nazism happen in Germany uh, and not elsewhere? And that is harder, I think, to explain because no matter what we look at, and I often, uh, with my students, often say, well, let's look at the question of, of eugenics. Say, uh, it's, it's uh, first of all a, a movement that didn't begin in Germany. It's uh, most notably taken up in uh, the US and in uh, Britain, at least intellectually, not uh, not in terms of legislation. Uh, it's important in Scandinavia, in many colonial settings, and, and in Latin America and so on. But in, in Germany, eugenics, uh, therefore, is, is, is not something unique to, uh, to Germany. But it's only under the Nazis that eugenic policies are made into the heart of what the regime does and the way it thinks. And that distinguishes the Third Reich under the Nazis from other regimes, whether authoritarian or fascist or, or liberal democratic, where, where eugenics is concerned, at least until World War II. Uh, and the same is true in, in every other respect, that we can say that Nazism is related to fascism, that it draws on the same international crises that have brought about all sorts of changes in the interwar period elsewhere in Europe. Nevertheless, this specifically German aspect of it isn't really addressed by by saying so. I wondered if we could talk a bit about how we should properly understand the relationship between Nazism and anti-Semitism and fascism. Mm -hmm. How do you think we should understand the ways in which those are related but different to each other, perhaps? 
That's a really important question, <laughs> a big question. I mean, I think one of the myths about Italian fascism is that the race laws in 1938 were introduced because of the rising power of the Third Reich and as a way to kind of assert Italy's own sovereignty vis-a-vis Nazi Germany, uh, and that there was no real anti-Semitism in Italian fascism before that point. And actually that idea has been, to a large extent, Uh, scotched, I think, by recent historiography. Nevertheless, it remains the case that in the 1920s, there were many Jews who were members of the fascist uh, party in Italy, and fascism wasn't unreservedly anti-Semitic in the way that Nazism was. That's a bit different from, I think, fascist movements elsewhere. If you look at the rise of the uh, Ustasha in uh, Croatia, or the Iron Guard in Romania, or the Vichy regime in France, you see that anti-Semitism is, is very much built into the way they think. The difference with Nazism is that for the leading Nazis, you know, for Hitler and Himmler and Heydrich and Eichmann and that leadership stratum for Goebbels, uh, the, their obsession with Jews, or with the Jew, the international Jew, is lies behind everything that they do and think. So they see everything in the world related to this problem of the Jew. And I think for leaders allied to Nazi Germany, let's say uh, Jan Antonescu in, in Romania or Admiral Horty in, in Hungary, um, they are, of course, uh, deeply anti-Semitic. Antonescu comes quite close to holding a, a kind of paranoid conspiracy theory view to Hitler's. But they, but in the end, they, none of them are, qu- are quite as totally obsessed with, with the Jew as, as Hitler is. And so for, for Hitler and the leading Nazis, I think what Saul Friedlander calls redemptive anti-Semitism is a powerful idea. That's to say, they believe that history is driven by this clash between Aryan and non-Aryan, between German and Jew, i.e. between good and evil, and that in order that Germany should be redeemed, uh, the, the Jew has to be defeated. Whereas I think for Hitler's allies, they're slightly more pragmatic. They're they throw their lot in with the final solution, certainly because they're anti-Semitic, but that anti-Semitism is more about creating ethnically homogeneous nation-states, whether in Romania or Hungary or Slovakia, or where it is, rather than this notion of fighting a, a world historical enemy. So for, for Hitler and the Nazis, there's something metaphysical about their anti-Semitism, whereas I think for those allied to Nazi Germany, it's, it's, more, uh, it, it's, it's a kind of practical question, obviously based also on false beliefs about Jews, but nevertheless, it's, it's more a, a kind of practical question. Once the Jews are expelled from country X, then they're not really very interested anymore. One of the things that struck me most about your book is how international this story really is. What are some of the key ways that you think that we have in the past perhaps not given enough emphasis to about that international story? That's a really good question. Uh, I think, first of all, this ha- and this is understandable in a way when we think historically about the ways in which the scholarship has has developed. The emphasis was on Germany, and obviously that's because most Holocaust historiography from the end of the war onwards was based on the records captured and presented at Nuremberg in the in the first international military tribunal. And those documents, which are primarily German perpetrator documents, have formed the backbone of Holocaust historiography ever since, although now supplemented with a vast range of other sources. And I think that produced a picture which suggested that most Holocaust victims were German Jews. It's, in, I think, inevitable if you write a book about the Holocaust, and mine is no different, that you start with the persecution of the Jews in Germany in the years 1933 to 39, And it gives the impression that the Jews of Germany were the main victims of the Holocaust, whereas, in fact, they 
they, as I tried to show in the book, they make up no, no more than a couple of percent of the victims of the Holocaust. And that's something that I think is very surprising to people because we still think of people like Anne Frank as representative victims of, of the Holocaust, and, and she was not. And, and so that's the first thing that we need to think about, that the, the victims of the Holocaust were from a much wider range of places than we tend automatically to assume. But nevertheless, the majority were orthodox, traditional, uh, poor Jews living in what had formerly been the Pale of Settlement in uh, in the Russian Empire. So the borderlands of Eastern Europe, what's today, well, the, the borderlands of, of Poland, uh, the Baltic states, Belarus and uh, Ukraine. That's where the majority of the Holocaust victims were from and where most of them were killed as well. Uh, so it's uh, it's quite a different picture from the one that we see when thinking about uh, the German Jews. The other issue, I think, and this is something that is much more recent in terms of the development of the historiography, that we see that the Holocaust was actually a worldwide phenomenon. And there's been much greater appreciation of this recently, that uh, there was a lot of uh, transoceanic migration involved, Jews trying to escape, whether via Marseille or later via Lisbon, uh, the last port where Jews could get out of Europe um, before and, and even after the war had started, that Jews made their way any anywhere they could get visas to. Large numbers of Jews in uh, Shanghai, in uh, Japanese-occupied Manchuria, in the Philippines, in Bolivia, in the Dominican Republic, in Mauritius, etc., uh, etc. Et so this this is a, a story in world history, and the the movement of ships and of and of refugees and uh, of particularly of, of Jewish refugees uh, makes this into a, a much bigger history than one confines either to to Germany or to to Europe as a whole. And that that sense of migration, the, the kind of constant movement, I think you call it, caused a form of trauma beyond the sort of the trauma that we obviously quite often focus on. Is is is, is that right? I mean, I think first of all that the, the when I talk about the trauma of the Holocaust, I, I don't necessarily mean in a strictly clinical sense, in the sense that comes from, is synonymous with PTSD and so on. Although I am suspicious of the way in which the term trauma has been used in, it, broadly in our culture to mean, you know, anything anything bad. But I, but I do mean it's some, something in between those two, I think. Because what I'm talking about here is trying to bring about an appreciation of the, the scale of the horror and of the destruction wrought by the Holocaust. Because I think a lot of our commemorative ceremonies in a way, they're well-meaning, but pass by in, in some crucial way what we're actually talking about, which is that when the survivors tried to return to their homes, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, which is where the majority of the Holocaust's victims were from, what they found was total devastation, that they were often the only survivors of their families and even of their communities and their towns, and that whole communities were wiped out. One of the things that I think is underappreciated is that of the six million Jews killed in the Holocaust, we still don't even know the names of over a million of them. There are whole communities in Eastern Europe about which we know nothing, and which is really extraordinary when you consider the the vastness of the documentation and how much has been written. There's there's still places we know simply know nothing about, um, and and th that is what I think I mean by trauma, where there are often a handful of people who survive from those places, whose lives are completely turned upside down. By, by what had happened. And when you think about the destruction of Jewish culture, particularly Yiddish-speaking culture as a whole in the Holocaust, you, you get a sense of, uh, of what I'm talking about, this uh, a, a whole ancient culture that is effectively wiped out by, uh, by this process. 
Thank you. Can can we trace the process by which the Nazis' Jewish policy shifted from one of forced emigration to one of extermination? Yes, we can. Um, and it's there's both, I think, a simple, a simple and a complex answer to this, because this question about the Nazis' decision-making process for the final solution used to be when I was an undergraduate, for example, absolutely the, the backbone of the historiography on, on the Holocaust. Um, but it is, of course, entirely perpetrator-centred, and that has been criticised in the last decade or, or so, saying, well, actually, uh, not just in the case of the Holocaust, but in, but in any genocide, we need to think about the victims as, as agents with real lives, not just people to whom bad things happen. So there's been a shift away from that focus, but we can still address that question, and it remains an important one, of, of course, because if we want to understand how this uh, event happened, we need to think about the perpetrators and what they were thinking. So I think the simple answer is to say that in a series of steps between spring of 1941 and uh, spring of 1942, the Nazis go from a, a policy of expelling the Jews out of, first of all, out of Germany, then planning to expel them out of Europe uh, through successful prosecution of the war, uh, through to a process of killing them on a regional basis, firstly in uh, the general government, i.e. the part of Poland that was occupied by the Germans but not incorporated into the Third Reich, uh, and then expanding that uh, killing policy to the Jews of the whole of Europe. And, and that itself is preceded by, uh, first of all, the euthanasia programme in, in Germany, and secondly, the what we, what's known now as the Holocaust by bullets, the shooting uh, by the Einsatzgruppen and their allies of, of Jews in uh, the Western Soviet Union. So you can, you can trace these steps. What's difficult is showing exactly who is making the decisions when, uh, because there's competing evidence. There's a lot of different agencies involved in the Third Reich, not just the party on the one hand and the civil service or the Wehrmacht on the other, but within the Nazi party structures, there's a lot of competition going on between uh, Goering and uh, the plenipotentiary for uh, the programme for the four-year plan, Goebbels and the propaganda ministry, uh, Alfred Rosenberg and uh, his ministry for the occupied eastern territories, Hans Frank in the general government, and in particular, and, and the ultimate, I think, winners in this process, um, the SS under uh, Heydrich and, and Himmler. They're the people who really take control of the process, but not without considerable competition from other uh, Nazi agencies. And you see this in, for example, the administration of the Wudge Ghetto, where the SS doesn't quite get its way in the same way as it does elsewhere, because there are other, other local interests uh, at stake. So I think what I've, I've tried to go into this to some extent in, in the book and address the evidence that shows when in spring, summer, autumn of 1941, you can see this kind of shift, the role of the Vanze Conference in, in this process, etc., uh, etc. Et but I think the one thing you can certainly say with clarity is that by the spring of 1941, uh, excuse me, by the spring of 1942, uh, what, you, what you can see is that the final solution as a Europe-wide programme is in place. There have been a series of steps to get there, but by, it's by spring of 1942 uh, that what we now think of as, as the Holocaust is really the, the programme that the Nazis are undertaking. It's interesting you highlighted the SS and its role there. Are there agencies or actors whose role you think has been misunderstood in this story? I think there are actors whose role has been underappreciated, 
So there were there were plenty of uh, agencies within the uh, the SS or the the, the RSHA structure. The the main uh, security office headed the umbrella uh, organization run by Heydrich in uh, in the first instance. So whether we talk about the RUSHA, the uh, Race and Settlement Main Office, or the so-called Volksdeutsche Mittelstelle, the office that uh, tried to uh, assess the the German racial qualities and of people across occupied Central and Eastern Europe, various other SS uh, agencies, the Waffen SS and so on. Um, these are all uh, competing for power. And there have now, in, uh, I suppose, the, the sub-discipline of, of perpetrator studies, been many attempts to show how uh, these different organisations uh, operated, what they shared amongst themselves, and what differentiated them. And one of the most important groups, I think, and outside of uh, the SS, but within the RSHA uh, umbrella organisation, is the Order Police. I mean, since uh, Christopher Browning wrote Ordinary Men, the order police have been on the radar of historians as you know, regular policemen who nevertheless took part in the uh, crimes against the Jews. And some of the recent work, including a study by Ian Rich, uh, shows that, uh, I think this is an important finding, that the they were, they were not as ordinary as it quite appears in some respects, in that the leadership stratum of, of these groups were... Uh, Nazi ideologues, uh, very clearly. They all went to the same training school in Berlin, Köpenick. They were all of the same uh, generation, just too young to have fought in the First World War, uh, but who felt the effects of, of the inflation and then the depression, and who were highly ambitious, careerist, and, and keen to make a career for themselves under, under Nazism. The men under them were more mixed. They were not necessarily ideologically driven in the same way. But what was what was crucial, and I think this actually is a finding that is useful for thinking about the Holocaust as such, was not that everybody was a rabid uh, anti-Semite or believed in the, the worldwide Jewish conspiracy and so on, but that the leaders did. And where, whether we're talking about the leadership of the order police or of the SS or of the Third Reich as a whole, what mattered is that the leadership stratum genuinely believed in, in this stuff and then had the, the means to mobilise other people to participate in it. Thank you, yes. One of the misapprehensions you talk about in the book is the idea that the Holocaust was a mechanised, um, efficient process. I wondered if you could pinpoint where that sort of misunderstanding has come from and how we should in fact see see this story mm. thank you that's a, that's an important question i mean i think it comes from the end of the war itself so when uh, when the red army liberated uh, maidanek in uh, lublin in the autumn of 1944 one of the first publications that came uh, out of that process, even before the war had ended, was a pamphlet uh, by Konstantin Simonov, the Russian uh, journalist, called the, the Death Factory uh, in Lublin. And this idea of the Death Factory had also been used already by other uh, writers about uh, about Auschwitz and Treblinka and, and so on, but even before the war had ended. Uh, so it became a very common trope. And it's not surprising in a sense, because the, uh, the idea of building a fixed installation where people would be sent to be killed, obviously uh, smacks of a kind of factory-like institution or or, or building uh, or camp. And so I, I'm not surprised by this, but I think the, the problem is that actually, it's not very pleasant to have to think about this, but the actual process of killing people in either the Reinhard camps, Belgium, Sobibor and Treblinka, or at Auschwitz or Majdanek, was not industrial in the sense that... Well, industrial tends to imply... Efficient, clean, orderly, regular. 
And actually, the the killing process in certainly in the Reinhard camps was very brutal, uh, violent. Uh, extremely messy. Uh, those were places that were not camps in any meaningful sense. Hardly anybody lived there. They were places where the Jews from the, the general government, i.e. the Jews of Poland, were deported, uh, were stripped and were murdered and then were plundered, had their bodies plundered for gold teeth and, and so on. The, the way they were killed was through the use of internal combustion engines with a pipe attached into, the, into a room. There's nothing efficient, modern, uh, technologically impressive about it. And, of course, the motors broke down. Uh, people had to wait, knowing what was happening to them, whilst the engines were fixed. And the the general chaos around the process, uh, of, of course, is something that is often not described. And, and the impact of the killing process on the surrounding area. So uh, there's been some interesting recent research on the, the smell of Treblinka in, to the nearest towns you know five miles away people could see in the air and could smell what was happening there uh, i think we f- we forget about that because it's those uh, i think things that relate to the senses are harder for historians to write about uh, because the sources are less uh, are less obvious and the same is true even at auschwitz I mean, when when auschwitz was working at its height the killing rate was extremely fast nevertheless it's not sophisticated technology it's extremely primitive it's extremely brutal and and violent when you read descriptions written by surviving members of the Zonderkommando and and others about what actually happened to people when they were killed in that way i think the using terms like industrial genocide it, it kind of hides from us uh, the tr- the truly uh, horrific nature of what was happening still to come on the History Extra podcast. These were people who were traumatised, above all lonely, in a, not just in a slightly miserable sense, but deeply, existentially lonely, who now had to pick themselves up, try and get help from international organisations with resettlement or repatriation, learn new languages, learn new skills, meet new people, all the while trying to make sense of what had just happened to them. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need indeed. We'll talk a bit more about whether or not we have a tendency to look away from some of these aspects a bit later. I wanted to ask you mm. first, to what extent you think the shape of the Holocaust was changed by the shape of the Second World War more generally? Do you think the two things can mm-hmm. be traced against each other like that? Yes. I mean, there is definitely a correlation. For, um, first of all, the Nazis can only put their hands on Jews that they have access to. It's it's a kind of obvious point, but I think it bears uh, bears repeating. And the best example of that, I suppose, is the fact that the Jews of Hungary, the largest surviving population group in uh, in Europe in early 1944, is only rounded up and deported to Auschwitz in the spring of 1944 after Germany occupies Hungary. So before that point. Hungary is allied to the Third Reich, but with a few exceptions, the it's a, an anti-Semitic regime under Admiral Horthy, uh, but he claims not to understand what the Nazis want when Hitler talks about deporting and, and killing the Jews. So there's, there's, his, he's willing to go to a, a certain point, but no further. And that only, that only changes, whilst Horthy still is in power, by the way, after uh, the Germans occupy the country in, uh, in March 1944. Um, and the same is true of, of uh, Jewish populations elsewhere. Elsewhere. If you look at the deportation of the Jews of Amsterdam or the deportation of the Jews of Salonika, Thessaloniki, you see exactly the same process. That it, it's only when particular countries are occupied um, that the Jewish uh, population in them is accessible to the Third to the Third Reich. And the same is true of the the Germans' allies. So the, Romania again is, I think, the the best example that Antonescu uh, decides in 1941 uh, when Romania invades the Soviet Union alongside the the Wehrmacht, that the Jews of, first of all, um, Bukovina and and Bessarabia will be deported and killed in uh, Transnistria alongside the local Jews, which includes the the, the area between the the Dniester and the Bug rivers, which includes uh, Odessa as the largest town. And the the Jews there uh, are... Initially, the the Romanians want to push them across the Bug into German-occupied Ukraine and partly because the Germans won't take them, the Romanians then set up uh, kind of makeshift camps and ghettos in Transnistria itself. Uh, and that's why uh, some 300, 350,000 Jews are killed by the Romanians rather than by the Germans in that uh, in that locality. Nevertheless, by the end of 1942, start of 1943, uh, Antonescu is, is changing his mind. And it has to do with the war situation. Uh, and so the Jews of old Romania, particularly the Jews of Bucharest, and the Jews of the Banat in the west of the country are not deported for various reasons. It's quite complicated. You know, we can we can deal with them later if you if you want. But the it's quite clear that there's a correlation between the war and the Holocaust. So for, for the Nazis' allies, they start to see, well, once it becomes it starts to become clear that the germans are not going to win the war they start to reassess their position on uh, on the holocaust and what it's is clear to them is going to be a bad look uh, when uh, when germany loses uh, the same is true in in vichy france for example uh, but for the germans themselves i think uh, I mean, your question, I guess, is is a response to books like David Cesarani's uh, Final Solution, which which placed a great store on the uh, ad hoc nature of the Final Solution and, and talks about how the deportation of the Jews happened in response to the military situation. Uh, I think that's that's clearly correct in the sense that the Nazis only deport Jews that they can access, which is related to the military situation. But it leaves unexplained the choice of the Jews as the target in the first place. Uh, so yes, there is a correlation between the Holocaust and the war, 
Uh, but th focusing on the war doesn't necessarily explain the attack on the Jews by the Nazis. Just one final point. When you, when you think about the, the deportation of the Jews of the Greek islands at the end of the war, say, there's nothing, there's no military gain to be had in that. And yet the Nazis do it anyway. One aspect of that story that I knew nothing really about um, that your book talks about is the rise in slave labour subcamps in the final stages of the war. Can you explain a little bit about what happened there and I suppose also what it tells us about the nature of the Holocaust more generally? Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> I wanted to talk about this because I think there's, there's a kind of strange situation, which is that these subcamps are very often referred to by survivors in their memoirs or oral testimonies when they're given, and yet they haven't really been incorporated into the synthetic histories of the Holocaust. Uh, there's something quite strange about that, that they're, they're sort of present and not present in our understanding at the same time, and yet they remain really very important. And I think that they've not they've been absent partly because they slightly confuse the history of the Holocaust, that we think, OK, if, if we say that by 1942, as I said earlier, that the the final solution as a, a recognisable Europe-wide programme to kill all the Jews of Europe is in place, then how do you suddenly explain in the summer of 1944 the creation of all these new little camps in which Jews are taken from Auschwitz or from the Wudge Ghetto uh, or from Hungary and sent to work in them? Uh, it, it, there's there's a, an obvious clash between Nazi ideology there, which is that race trumps labour, and the attenuation of this ideology at this point. But that is what happens. Uh, actually, in the by the start of 1945, where there are, uh, whatever it is, 13 or 14 uh, main concentration camps in, in the Third Reich, so in Buchenwald and Mauthausen, Flossenburg and so on, there's about a thousand of these subcamps attached to the main camps. It's a huge number and many of them are, um, almost all of them actually I think, are places that uh, most people have never heard of. Not very much is known about many of them and yet they're really very important for understanding the Holocaust. So to come to your, the second part of your question, first of all the Nazis set these up and the SS set them up and uh, kind of rent Jews to local firms uh, who use them pr simply because the war economy demands it. The Germans are, are desperate for labour at this point. All the men, all the German men are in the Wehrmacht. German women, who have, of course, to look after their, their families, are working. There are something like seven million uh, foreign forced labourers in the Third Reich. So not concentration camp inmates, but people who have been taken from uh, Ukraine or Poland or Yugoslavia or, or France and, and uh, dragged into the Third Reich to work in agriculture or in armaments factories and so on. And it's still not enough. So at, at late in the war, uh, the SS starts to use concentration camp inmates as slave labourers. And I make this distinction between forced and slave labourers where, uh, I mean, most forced labourers were also not well looked after, but they, uh, and were also often housed in camps and so on, but they, they were not concentration camp inmates in the same way that uh, the slave labourers were, who were totally exploited, were not paid for their work and so on. And the, the importance for the Holocaust is that 
these people, it did slightly attenuate Nazi ideology, but only slightly, because all that was happening really was that these people's deaths was being deferred. So the war economy and the SS that used them in this situation basically made the decision, okay, we don't really want to do this, but we're desperate, we'll use these Jews um, until such point as we don't need them, and then we'll kill them. And the way in which they were treated uh, also, of course, was totally inimical to uh, any meaningful productivity. So on the whole, uh, with, with exceptions, the, uh, the slave labour camps were better than Auschwitz in the sense that people had slightly better beds and the food rations were a bit better. Nevertheless, the work was often brutal and people uh, were weakened and then returned to Birkenau to be killed when they, when they were too weak to work anymore. But, uh, and this is very important, the being sent to a slave labour subcamp meant that the in the final days of the war, those who'd been in them, and they were generally very young men and women, and actually often boys and girls, aged between 14 and 18, were slightly fitter than they would have been had they simply been sent to Auschwitz or to Grossrosen. And that is what allowed them in the last days of the war to survive the death marches and the liberation period. So the the fact that these camps were created out of desperation, uh, first of all, there's a kind of irony in this, in that uh, suddenly there were large numbers of Jews again on Reich territory, which had been declared uh, Jew-free by the Nazis. But secondly, it also uh, inadvertently allowed many of these Jews to survive. Again, only on, on a purely contingent basis, all of them would have been killed eventually. And had the war lasted a, a little longer, many of those who were liberated at Belsen or Dachau or, or Buchenwald would have been dead. Uh, but I think the the fact that they'd been in these subcamps was what uh, kept them alive. Hmm. As well as sort of tackling the big picture sweep of this story, your book also talks about some obviously understandably moving stories of individual experiences. Are there any stories or individual experiences that you think tell us something about these themes perhaps these themes that aren't properly understood i suppose yes i mean there there are many i think and uh, in different settings and at different moments in time so uh, one of the i think very moving um, sources from from early on in uh, in this period is uh, a letter that was written by a german man to his grandson which uh, was actually never written but is is one of the few examples that we have of somebody really understanding the implication of what was happening in germany uh, in in 1933 so uh, this is a man called max meyer uh, actually, sorry, this is in this is in 1938, but it is is typical of um, a few examples of of people at this point who could see what the, what the logic of Nazism was. I don't mean that they predicted the Holocaust. That's there were people who did that, but you get the sense that that was in in a sense they were saying things without necessarily knowing exactly what they they were talking about. But but there are people who understood the the apocalyptic nature of Nazism from from quite early on, and so this this letter says. In fulfilment of this theory, which is dressed up as an ideology, an orgy of racial hatred has been instituted, together with a process whereby Jewish persons are subjected to total and systematic disqualification. The entire party machine, the press, vocational training, broadcasting, official propaganda, the political education of the young, the whole of national life, all have been harnessed to the task of stripping Jews of their good name and social acceptability, regardless of personal standing. 
they are being ousted from their homes and livelihoods and compelled to emigrate destitute of means, and the belief in their human inferiority is being duly incorporated into the Aryan world of ideas. And I think that, you know, in 1938, that's um, that's quite a prescient and trenchant summary of what's uh, of what's happening. So there, there are those... And I think the fact that he never sent this letter, though it was written to his grandson, is also telling. Uh, and there, there are many such uh, letters uh, of, of this sort that uh, where you see people trying to trying to work out what's happening. But this one, I think, is uh, particularly clear in its uh, assessment of of what is uh, going on. Other, I think, personal tales. I think a lot to, to move um, to, to jump to, towards the end of, of the Holocaust period. I, I think I focus quite a lot on individual tales from the periods of, of the death marches and uh, from the subcamps, precisely because, as we were saying about the subcamps, the death marches too haven't been incorporated into the synthetic histories of the Holocaust in quite the way that they they should. I think, uh, and some of the tales, in particular. Uh, the that of uh, Trudy Levy, who became later famous as the author of Cat Called Adolf, um, and and so on. Her story, I think, is is really remarkable. Uh, it's in some ways typical of the trajectories of of those who survived the Holocaust, but on the other hand, extraordinary. And and I think that's true of all of these narratives that they have a lot in common. But there are many where you read them or listen to them, and you think that this person should have died then or then or then and you, you realize the absolute role of of chance uh, in in survival uh, and that i think is uh, something that is really extraordinary and and also important to talk about because it goes against this notion that that we really want to believe in that people survive because they really wanted to or because they fought against what was happening to them uh, and actually i think almost everybody who survived of course wanted to survive but survived because of luck talking about the end of the war and the end of the Holocaust. One of the interesting things you talk about in your book is how language can sometimes be unhelpful, particularly when it comes to such terms as liberation. Can you talk a bit about why these ideas, why these phrases may actually get in the way of us understanding the true nature of this story? I I think this is because uh, they impose even sim- sim- simple terms impose a kind of narrative structure on the way we think that leads us towards an, an ending and imposes a kind of ending on on the story and that ending tends to suggest that things are over and done with doesn't necessarily have to be a happy ending though that also, that's also implied in in many uh, of these terms but survival liberation um, etc these are all terms that imply an overcoming of something that the the horror has been finished with it's been uh, suppressed uh, and now things can can move on and actually survival is a, is a very problematic term because survivors of the holocaust were for the most part people who were very ill uh, who remained ill psychologically if not physically for most of the rest of their lives and people whose survivorship came to define most of the rest of their lives. I'm not saying that Holocaust survivors didn't go on to lead n- normal lives. Actually, the uh, the psychological studies of them are often surprised to the by the extent to which they were able to do so. Nevertheless, the the memory of the, of what happened to them, of course, never left them. And there's a kind of trauma that was passed down to their children and things that happened to them that I think could never really be 
fully explained to others, uh, even to other people who who were there, so to speak. So survivorship is a is a problematic concept. Liberation is even worse, I think, because although I, I continue to use the term because it's hard to think of uh, another, uh, nevertheless, the, the idea of liberation bringing uh, freedom and relief from suffering, I think is very much off the mark when it comes to the Holocaust. Actually, those liberated with with exceptions so the the survivors from western europe were able to go home albeit slowly if you think of primo levi's uh, trajectory home uh, after uh, being in auschwitz it, it took something like nine months and was extremely circuitous uh, his his route back to turin but for those uh, jews from central and eastern europe what happened to them they ended up in displaced persons camps in germany or austria a uh, small number in italy because they had nowhere else to go and so this idea of being liberated and free to go where they wanted was absolutely not what happened uh, and in some cases for many years after the holocaust and again you know i think to come back to what i was saying before that these were people who were traumatized above all lonely in a, not just in a slightly miserable sense but deeply existentially lonely who now had to pick themselves up try and get help from international organizations with resettlement or repatriation learn new languages learn new skills meet new people all the while trying to make sense of what had just happened to them um, the idea of this is a kind of liberation is slightly <laughs> slightly mocking even we we touched on earlier the idea of perhaps a looking away from the full extent of the Holocaust and these mm. stories we've talked about. Do you think some of that looking away is because the Holocaust has things to tell us about modern society and post-war society that we're not yet ready to engage with fully? I I do. It's a, it's a very big and complicated question. And I think part of the answer to this is that Holocaust commemoration is extremely well-meaning. I think it's probably better that we have some Holocaust education than none at all. It's probably better that we have Holocaust commemoration than not. But the, the part of the problem here is that these is that commemorative ceremonies tend to settle into a particular format. They become repetitive and to some extent, platitudinous, and they follow a similar kind of uh, template every time they occur. And I should emphasise again, I mean, I'm not saying it's, it's not well-meaning or it's cynical. I don't think that's necessarily uh, the case, although sometimes you can see the involvement of, of certain politicians and so on. We think, OK, this is a little bit opportunist. On the other hand, to come back to your second part of your question, it's, it's, it's a very difficult question to answer briefly uh, because it touches, I think, on huge philosophical and sociological questions. But yes, I think that part of the problem is that the Holocaust does suggest something about the modern world that is very difficult to take, which is not, it's not that this was a regime led by madmen that has nothing to do with us. I think that's a really bad mistake. The Nazis were manoeuvred into power by German elites who wanted to protect their own interests. And when you look around the world today, it doesn't seem so far-fetched to think elites will bring people into power who are who had previously been unacceptable if they feel that their interests are threatened. The role of the the pillars of society, the military, the church, the monarchy or the political establishment, uh, etc., uh, the police and so on, in uh, the Third Reich is 
Again, an extreme version of what happened elsewhere, everywhere under Nazi occupation. Uh, The participation of the the Dutch civil service, because that's what they were trained to do, the French railways, the Romanian civil service, uh, etc., etc., the list goes on, suggests that we can, we, as modern modern, um, societies and, and cultures, can slip into doing terrible things, in a sense, without even realizing it, and that there are the the holocaust was driven by particular passions and obsessions of the nazi elite but the participation in the process by virtually the whole of europe uh, suggests that this isn't something that we can just simply push away and say this was the work of a, of a few madmen so it's it's a very complicated and, and difficult uh, question but it's one that i think is important to think about thank you yes and do you think similarly that the shape of Holocaust historiography and research has, to some extent, been hampered or shaped by even an academic unwillingness or a national unwillingness to engage with this kind of thing? It varies from place to place. Um, I think that the Holocaust historiography, and and there's quite a large gulf, I think, between the scholarly landscape and the the world of popular representations or popular memory or commemoration of the Holocaust. But to focus on the former for the moment, I think the best scholarship on the Holocaust is now international in in scope, international in terms of scholarly cooperation and so on. And there's a lot of very good work being done. Where it's hampered, I think, is on at the national level. So it, it's certain, obviously in the post-communist countries, but uh, elsewhere, including Greece, for example, uh, and in the UK to some extent, there was a kind of uh, belatedness in in grappling with some of these issues for various reasons. Uh, and that's, that's slowly changing. But if you compare, let's say, uh, Holocaust historiography in Poland, which is now uh, pretty sophisticated, uh, with that in Romania, which is growing, but you know there's still quite a gulf uh, b- between them. The Romanian historiography of the Holocaust is uh, is hampered by the fact that it's still a, a country in which talking about this subject is not very popular and, and won't get you very far. So um, there there are all sorts of problems along along those lines. But I think at a purely scholarly level, that. It's not really such a, a problem. The problem is bridging the gap between scholarship and, and public understanding and doing so um, when having to take on establishments, for example, obviously the, the current government in Poland, for example, uh, or other interests that want to push certain uh, understandings of the Holocaust that are less less critical than others. The idea, obviously, of talking about the Holocaust as a pan-European crime is is not something that plays well in certain countries that don't want to address their own involvement in in this and it also doesn't play well in Germany uh, where conventional holocaust pieties if you like are very rooted in in controlling the idea that this was a german crime because anything else was somehow waters down the significance of the event to to german to the german ethical landscape if and memory landscape so it, it has a, a effect in both ways. What challenges do you think the recent rise in nationalism and national populism poses to the legacy of the Holocaust? And do you think it only adds to the importance of teaching it in the correct way? It's a huge question. Uh, I think that the rise of right-wing populism and nationalism and xenophobia across the world tells us in the first instance 
that teaching kids about the Holocaust at school is not going to be the answer to our problems. I'm not I'm not opposed to Holocaust education, but I think we have to be realistic about what can be asked of it. So we can't solve the problems of the world by teaching teaching about the Holocaust and expecting uh, people, children, to then grow up into nice people who care about others. Uh, unfortunately, if the uh, broader socioeconomic conditions are poor, I think Holocaust education will go out the window. And, and that is what we see at the moment, that uh, I'm sure there are lots of people who voted for populist parties across Europe and in the US and elsewhere who've had Holocaust education, were very moved by what they learned, and who nevertheless voted for populist right-wing parties anyway, because they feel that they, they speak to their interests at that particular moment in time. So it's 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 not a simple correlation uh, at all. There is some evidence that those who have Holocaust education talk about themselves uh, as being better tooled up, if you like, for dealing with prejudice and xenophobia and so on. But that's self-reporting. And when it actually comes down to it, I'm not sure how much credence we can give that kind of uh, evidence. The problem... I think here is that so that's I mean that's to do with Holocaust education. That's a separate problem um, and and one that is important because so much store is placed on Holocaust education that I think we need to step back in a bit and say, hang on a minute, this is not the answer to all of these big big problems. We're not going to combat uh, xenophobia across the world by teaching about about the Holocaust. The bigger problem here, and this is about the the rise of uh, the populist right is that what although there are many commentators and, and uh, academics uh, in political theory and history and so on who say well there's a difference between political uh, between the uh, populism and and fascism uh, these are people working within the democratic system and not outside of it or, or opposed to it and so on is that i think that one of the ways that the holocaust did change the world is that there is now a kind of store or a reservoir of aesthetics, of imagery, of vocabulary, simply of feeling that tends towards fascism and that the solutions offered by Nazism have echoes in those that are being talked about today in uh, radical quarters. So ideas about the great replacement theory, this notion that there are there's a conspiracy to do away with the, the white race uh, and replace them with, with, with brown people and so on. Uh, th- these sorts of ideas sound familiar to us and uh, there's a reason for that. And that means that you know, something has been inserted into our culture that we cannot get rid of, and that uh, that has to be continually, we have to be continually vigilant about it. That was Dan Stone. The Holocaust and Unfinished History is out now, published by Pelican Books. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.